Good morning, everybody. Like getting focused again. We don't usually do communion before the messages, Dante said. Um, and my thought process this week when I like made that plan was I was like, but I just need to get everybody on the hook, you know? We're gonna talk about living together, and I don't want anybody to be like, well, I don't actually live with you guys. <laughs> like so. But then in doing it, of course, like it's it's my favorite part of the service, and so it feels. Um, strange to get up and talk after. Um, it's good to be with you. We have a tough week this week. Um, and the reason is because we're continuing in our new series on Paul's first letter to his apprentice, Timothy. And the series is called Living Together. And the truth is that this is the week that gave the series its title and also made us at times not want to do it in the first place. And the reason is because living together is hard. It just is. This is something that I would wager that each and every one of you knows from firsthand experience. So we can start by getting our own stories on the table, right? So I'll go first, and I'm the only one with a microphone. So you all, this, you all are off the hook on this. Um, none of them are in here. None of my family are in here. So, Ooh, all right, and you guys are sworn to secrecy. Right, here's the thing. If my children do not start putting dishes in the dishwasher, like, I'm going to lose my actual mind. And if Graham in particular doesn't every, I don't know how a person makes as much mess eating breakfast cereal as he does, but there every morning when I come downstairs, there's just milk all over the table. And I'm like, like how do you get up with this milk splashed everywhere and be like, that's fine. <laughs> like, total mania. Their bathroom is like, filth beyond filth like, it's a level of gross that is embarrassing to me and dangerous possibly for like the sanitation in our home and meredith my wife is great <laughs> i'm not falling for that like that she's great i have no complaints but in general with the exception of meredith living together is not easy and so it's a reasonable question that probably all of you wondered at some point or another, um, why do we do it? Why? And the simplest and perhaps the most profound answer is we do it because we need each other. We just do. We just need people. Life isn't meant to be lived alone. We're just not wired that way. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody needs a spouse or that everybody needs children. But it does mean that we need real community with other people. And the reason we need that community is because our goal at some point is to be more fully and wholly ourselves. And we need people for that to happen. And the reason, as weird as it sounds, is that it's more or less impossible to really see ourselves as we truly are if we don't have to see ourselves through the eyes of other people. We're all great self-deceivers. I mean, in my own mind, I am endlessly kind. I am endlessly patient. I'm smart. I'm generous. I'm right about like everything, like all things. It's awesome. It's only when I'm forced to see myself as others see me that I can be made aware of my blind spots, like the times that I let my selfishness make me mean or my tendency to bury my emotions when I don't feel comfortable with them, or even my more self-destructive impulses, right? Like not taking good care of my physical or my mental health. And as nice as it might seem, 
from the outside to just be right all the time. I need people like Meredith and my children and my friends to be willing to help me realize when I'm wrong about stuff. And, and I say all that because what I'm getting at is that it's not a defect in me that causes me to need other people. It's part of my design. It's part of God's plan for my health. And one thing that I think we can learn from this letter from 1 Timothy is that our health isn't the only reason that we need to learn to live together. Because another reason, another reason we need to learn together is because the way that we live our lives tells other people a story about who God is. The way we live our lives tells other people a story about who God is. And we've been invited, we've even been designed to be reflections of our creator in the world. That's how God wants this whole thing to go. His plan for revealing himself to his creation isn't a plan that's premised on ruling over us as some dominant force. Instead, because at the center of his nature is love, he can only be truly described and known through love. And love takes two. Now here's how Paul puts this in his letter. And I want us to read this carefully here because I believe this is the underpinning of everything that we're trying to learn, not just today, but in the whole series. Paul writes, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. When Paul reminds Timothy that he, Paul, is the foremost of sinners, he is not trying to be modest. He's not trying to be hard on himself or unkind to himself. What he's saying, he's saying that the easiest way for us to really understand in our deepest heart what it is that we are called to is to remember repeatedly that on our own, we're not enough. That we have a brokenness within us, that that brokenness is the warrant for the whole gospel story. If we are left in isolation, if any of you are left in isolation, we cannot be fully and truly who it is that we can all sense inside of ourselves we've been made to be. We can't get to that thing we feel is right about us on our own. And that is sin, that brokenness that keeps us from being complete and leads us into all that self-deception that we talked about. But the point, the point I think Paul's getting at of discovering our own sinfulness, that brokenness, the point of it isn't shame and it's not self-hate. The very reason, he says, that we received mercy is so that we can discover this loving patience of God. And then, having discovered God's patience, be able to display that patience. And that last part is so important to Paul. I received mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. We have been called out of the isolation that we would choose for ourselves. 
and into community so that the living and eternal body of Christ might grow beyond just us. And this is the very center of, of Paul's whole understanding of how the Jesus stuff works, that Christian faith has exposed this utter emptiness of his previous life, which is all built around pride and self-righteousness. And it has led Paul, who is a respected man, to this paradox that defines his whole life. Now, now he realizes that it is by making himself less that he becomes more fully himself. By giving up all the arrogant comforts of his life as a Pharisee and traveling the world to serve and to suffer for other people, he has somehow more joy than he had before. By being willing to die all the time, he is drawing closer to life. And the thing, in this like weird upside-down way in which he's feeling compelled to live, in which he's talking about all the time, the thing that gives him this dizzying confidence he has in this upside-down way of being is this upside-down example of Jesus and the life that Jesus has modeled. Jesus is the Messiah, and he saves the world by dying for it. And so Paul, at the root of all of his letters, at the root of his whole ministry, is this like all-in commitment to following that radical example, like all the way to the end of the line. And it makes Paul, frankly, like a kind of wild person. And it is also the thing that makes him so, so frustrated by what he is seeing in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is and where the church is that he's writing this letter to because he went to Ephesus, he met people who were not Jesus followers, who were not even particularly religious in any kind of real way, and he taught them that crazy upside-down gospel. And now he's checked in on them 10 years later, and they're acting not only no different than they did before. It's not even like they've just gone back to the way they used to live. They're now living like he used to live when he was a Pharisee. And he's just like, his mind's blown. Like, how... How did the gospel, which was the, the turnaround for me from that pharisaical life, how did people I gave that to get this thing back out of it? He's perplexed. What in the world has happened to their faith? And the short answer that he, that he presents to Timothy here is that they have forgotten those two parts of what it means to live together that we started with. The first is this. They're not letting other people correct their bad behavior, which is a thing people do for us. And the second is they've forgotten the whole point of all of this community and all of that correction is to bear witness to God's love. They're not being corrected. They're not bearing witness to God's love and in their interactions with one another. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the examples and try and see what ties them together here in verse 10. We're going to focus today on what might seem like some scattered advice that we find in chapter 5. We're going to, I'll read for us. Paul says, and this is like a list of advice he's giving to Timothy about what he needs to tell the people in the church. He says, do not speak harshly to an older man, but speak to him as a father, to young, or speak to him as to a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Honor widows who are really widows. 
If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some repayment to their parents, for this is pleasing in God's sight. The real widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give these commands as well, so that they may be above reproach, and whoever does not provide for relatives, and especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Alright, I chose this passage because what is, what is he talking about? Why do we care? These are reasonable questions. This is a ran, feels like a random bit of advice. We've got a number of problems that he's trying to address. Young men in this church are speaking disrespectfully to older men and women, as well as to women their own age or younger than them. Everybody. It would have been simpler to say they're just being rude to all the people. And then he says, stop that. And then there's the second bit tacked on here that he goes at, goes at for a while about real widows, which is confusing to us. And then finally, we have this last part about providing for relatives. So we've got rude young men, fake widows, and not providing for your family. Those things don't feel connected. But what's Paul's advice to all of these things? Well, he says to the rude young men, he says, treat older men like they're your father. Treat older women like they're your mother. Treat young women like they're your sisters. Stop being jerks to them. That's the point. But the way to stop being a jerk is to see these people as family. He's saying this isn't a wolf pack, right? You don't need to be an alpha over anybody else. And then, regarding these false widows, Paul says that if they have children or grandchildren, that these kids should be taking care of them instead of the church. Now, this might take a little bit of context, so here it goes. In the first century, women without family, right, are among the most vulnerable people in any community. Without a culturally or morally acceptable way of making money, they can easily fall into terrible poverty and be neglected and, and sort of fall out of, of the ability to care for themselves in the society. And so, given that that is like a, a known problem in the world of the first century, one of the things that the early churches do is they make a name for themselves by being communities that will take that specific burden on. And so churches would use the community funds they had, which were brought together by the tithe that people were giving into the church, they would use that money to care for all of these widows in the community and to support them. It's one of these like, very clear ways that the church is meeting an actual need in, in their cities. But it would seem that at least in Ephesus, there are women in the community who are abusing this system of charity. And so Paul is saying to these women, like, look, if you're like on the community goal here, like in the widow list, and you've got family somewhere else that could be taking care of you, you need to step up and ask your family to take care of you. Stop using the church to avoid that conflict with your own relatives, right? Step up and ask them, and do so because you need to remember that there are other women in this community who are not so fortunate, who don't have a family that they could ask, and you are taking money from them. You're reducing the funds available to real widows, right? It's a pretty practical bit of advice. It does not map very easily or cleanly onto like revolution in Annapolis in 2023, but it is what he's saying. And then there's the last bit of counsel. So we've got talk to other people like they're your family members. Don't 
exploit the church's funds if you've got other if you've got other options. And the last bit of counsel for Timothy, where he says, reminds the people that whoever does not provide for relatives, and especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, on its surface, right, this feels like a warning to those kids and those grandkids who are stiffing their widow grandmas, right? Like, it feels, these feel connected. So if any of you have a relative that you're letting the church fund and you're not saying anything about it, you're worse than an unbeliever. It is harsh. I've never said that in a sermon, but like... Anyways, so don't stiff your widow grandmas. But... Let's try something here before we move on, right? This list of advice might seem random at first, but here's what I want us to wonder. What happens if you look at it as a whole? We try to look at this advice as one, one thing. Remember, what's Paul saying to those rude young guys at the beginning? He's saying, everybody in this body is your family member. And what's he saying at the end? Well, he's saying, whoever does not provide for family members is denied the faith. That's true that some of these false widows might be taking advantage of the church, right? But it also appears to be true that in the body of the church, in the body of the church, everybody's a false widow. There are no grandmas in Ephesus without a family to care for them. If every grandma in Ephesus is your grandma. Now, that's both the wild challenge and I think the kind of wild miracle of the kind of church that Jesus has set out to build. We've received mercy so that in us, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. The challenge Paul's sending out here is he's saying, like, the more you give, the more you live, right? This isn't a command. You don't have to do these things. It's an invitation if you want to follow me in this like wild death is life thing that Jesus has led me to do. So the first thing Paul, I think, is trying to remind these Christians about is that they have gotten out of the practice of letting life with other people correct their bad behaviors. Instead, what they're doing is they're drawing all of these lines in the same way that they did before the church was built. They're drawing all of these lines between who is their family member and who's not their family member. And the reason they're drawing the lines is because they ultimately want to justify meanness, and they want to justify exclusion, and they want to justify like flat-out unkindness, and frankly just hoarding their own money and not having to give it away, right? But he's saying if you can remember that when it comes to adopting family members— Jesus has gone first by adopting you and his family. Then maybe that encouragement, that example of God's patience, will be something that can lead you to help or can help you to embrace this upside down life that Jesus is calling all of these Christians to. Does that make sense? I felt like it made sense and then I lost it for a minute, but I feel like we're good. All right, the second thing. The second thing Paul is trying to teach is that the point of all of that, of all of that correction, of enduring all of these hardships of this like upside-down life, the point is to bear witness to God's love. It's not just for you. The point is that if you're all doing this thing, other people will see it. And in seeing it, they'll see a picture 
how God cares for his creation. So you have this mission, right? Now we can see this, I think this happening in what is frankly the most jarring and difficult section in all of 1 Timothy. And we find it at the start of chapter 6. And this is where if any of you are like Timothy scholars, you're all like, you should have skipped this. What are you doing? Don't do this thing. I'm going to do it. Here's what he says at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. May not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are brothers and sisters. Rather, they must serve them all the more since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Now, all of you who are not Timothy scholars are like, why? <laughs> why are you skipping this? All right. We need to begin with a few things. We need to begin first by noting the incredibly harmful history of this passage, particularly in this country. Paul's words here have been used for a very long time to justify the enslavement of actual human persons. And even, not just to justify that enslavement, but even to quiet those who are enslaved by teaching them that resistance to slavery is somehow unchristlike. The same Christ who preaches freedom. And here's the thing, like I can't undo that harmful history with anything that I say here in the next five minutes. And I also can't fix this passage for, for us so that it's no longer dangerous or troubling or unsettling. Can't do that. I try to do that sort of thing whenever I can as a preacher, but I can't do it at the expense of being faithful to the text. And I also can't just skip over the things that are tough. But here's what I can say. First, just to put it on the table, slavery is unquestionably immoral, and it is unquestionably contrary to God's intent for human beings to see all other human beings in the same way that he sees them, which is, as his precious children, worthy of any offer of salvation, adoption, and love. That's how God sees people. That's how we are to see people. Second, it's an abuse of Scripture to preach that Paul endorses or approves of human slavery, even here. We know this because Paul wrote other letters besides 1 Timothy, right? Including one to his dear friend Philemon, who enslaved another of Paul's friends, a guy named Onesimus. Now in that letter, Paul instructs Onesimus, who had run away from his master, to return. Not because he was Philemon's legal property, but because Paul says it is our calling as followers of Christ to always choose self-sacrifice if doing so might create an opportunity for another person to discover God's grace. This, Paul believes, is our privilege as Christians, to choose self-sacrifice if it might create an opportunity for someone to experience or discover grace. But the thing people forget when they look at that passage in Paul's letter to Philemon is this, is that the letter isn't written to the slave. It isn't written to Onesimus. It's written to Philemon. It's written to his master. 
And Paul's instruction to Philemon is to rightly respond to Onesimus' humility and sacrifice by, when he sees him, releasing him from slavery and instead embracing him as his brother. In other words, Paul says that these two men are to treat each other properly as men, and not just as men, but as family. And that means loving the other person more than you love yourself. Now, whether that works or not, we actually don't know. Whether that's a comfortable teaching, we can almost certainly say it isn't. But I think that that detour into Philemon and and this question of slavery is helpful, I believe, because it harmonizes with what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. Because what's happening in Ephesus is this. Legal slaves are attending church in Ephesus along with their enslavers. And because the teaching of the church is pretty clear that all people are co-equal siblings with one another, those slaves are using that teaching of the church as a justification for acts of disrespect to their enslavers. Now, they have reasonable grounds to do that. What their enslavers are doing is out of alignment with the teaching of the church. In fact, the teaching of the church is actively exposing the hypocrisy of their enslavement. It's a weird thing for two people with that kind of a relationship to go into a church service, be told we're all equals, and be like, that was an awesome message, and then go back to owning each other. Like, the hypocrisy is being exposed by the church as the church's message. But Paul's counsel is that the full power of the upside-down gospel of Christ works best when it follows the example that Jesus has set, which is not claiming rights, but releasing them. What the hypocritical slavers in Ephesus ultimately need is not to be argued or shamed out of doing what they're doing. What they need is a change of their heart, to see that what they're doing is a perversity and an abuse of the world that God has made. And so the gamble here that Paul's trying to counsel these people to do, the gamble here is that by seeing and treating your quote-unquote master as they really are, which is as your brother, that you are living in the truth that their actions are betraying. And if they're truly following Jesus... What they need to do when you treat them as Jesus would treat them will become clear to them. They must recognize who you really are and not only just free you, but serve you all the more since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Now, the truth is, obviously, we cannot map this teaching from almost 2,000 years ago in a church on the other side of the world onto our own context. Like I said, I can't fix this, and it's not my job to. But I can say that seeing the people we live with as real siblings was then and is now the best curative for inequality, and taking this teaching to heart means for us going a lot further 
than any legalism could ever take us. Because, because here's the thing. If the point of all this correction, of enduring the hardships of this upside-down life, is to bear witness to God's love, not physically enslaving another human being isn't good enough. Saying to, my, saying to yourself, like, I've never owned a person, does not get you off the hook from any of this teaching. God's love does not stop at legal justice. God's love doesn't stop at some lazy notion of freedom or equality. God's love chases people down and dies for them. God's love chooses that upside-down hardship over and over and over and over again. And just because none of the people in this room this morning are literal slavers doesn't mean that we don't all benefit from the mistreatment and marginalization and exploitation of other people all the time. We do. You do. I do. Whether it's the cheap prices for stuff that we pay, for stuff we know was made because people are being exploited and abused, or if it's the general generational wealth that we enjoy because we elect not to pay attention to the cruelty that created that generational wealth, or even if it's the rising value of our homes or our 401ks, which go up because some neighborhood here in Annapolis is being gentrified or some neighbor is being put down. The point is, is whether you want to or not, you're all benefiting from the exploitation of other human beings. And the reason that we're usually able to make ourselves feel okay with that benefit is because we've built a world where we don't have to see it and we don't want to. But are you gonna choose an upside down life or not? Maybe one of the lasting challenges of 1 Timothy here is this reminder that even if we don't see it, God sees it. And we have been invited to see as he sees if we have the guts to do it. We can be corrected. And my purpose here this morning isn't to make you feel bad, although for a second I kind of was thinking that was the purpose. Because the truth is, that like making you feel bad or making me feel bad isn't going to work any more than Paul telling Philemon to free Onesimus would have worked. My purpose here is to reframe the way that we look at our families so that our hearts might change. And in changing, we might display the utmost patience of Jesus as an example to all who would believe in the world. God believes in us. Weirdly, he believes that each and every one of you can bear witness not just to his power over human beings, but to his love for human beings. And that's why he doesn't care and has never cared to lift up this church of Jesus as some mighty and righteous ruler of the world, even though he certainly could do that if he wanted to. But instead, what he has done from the beginning is invite the people of the church to live this upside-down way where because we choose to to love and serve all, even at great cost to ourselves, we live in a way that enables other people to discover just how worthy of love they are. And what it takes to get to that, to live that way, is the courage to really see each other, 
to have our sense of family expanded. To believe that we're all family and that we need to live like family. And as you know, living together with anyone except Meredith is hard. <laughs> but that very difficulty is the thing that can keep refining us as we learn to see ourselves through other people's eyes and have our behavior corrected. And then in that correction, reveal our Savior who chose patience and belonging with us over self-righteousness and over vindication. And so the simple challenge is this. Let's pursue that conviction this week by asking ourselves, who can I see and who can I serve? Who do I not see all the time? Who is the easiest for me to pretend is not my relative? Which relative of mine would I like to pretend is no longer my relative? Who can I treat as a sibling that I might have previously ignored? Or even worse, to try to live in competition with? There's all a way of saying and praying, show us, God, who has your attention and who deserves to have ours. Who has your attention and deserves to have ours. I'll pray for us and we'll sing a little bit more and close today.